This podcast is being brought to you by WXAV.com. WXAV, bringing the best artists to you. I'm William Kalush, and I'm the executive director at Conjuring Arts Research Center in New York. Now, uh, Mr. Kalush, can you tell me um, how you first became interested in magic? When I was young, my father had been a Marine who was uh, horrifically wounded on Guadalcanal in World War II. And as he was mending in the hospital, somebody taught him a little magic. So many years later, when I was a kid, he taught me a few things, and it just uh, stuck with me, got me fascinated with the, the art of deception as, a, as entertainment. Now, uh, would you say that's kind of like your first memory of magic, is, is your father teaching you uh, some magic tricks? That's an interesting question. I'm not certain I have thought about what my first memory is, but yes, I, I think that's right. I think that was my, my first memory of magic was was him teaching me some magic. Do you have like a favorite aspect of magic? Like what is it that has kept your interest in magic for almost your entire life? Well, magic's a very uh, rich art. There are many different disciplines and branches on that big tree. So there's lots of things to be interested in. And uh, all of us uh, that are interested in magic are interested in some subset of those branches, so to speak. Uh, So there's really... You could be interested in collecting material. You could be interested in doing original historical research. You could be interested in performing. You could do it as a profession. You could do it just for your own passion. There's so many aspects that, for me, there's there's it's a never-ending source of inspiration and uh, enjoyment. I gotta ask this question. It's a probably a little cliche, but do you have a favorite illusion at all? Well, you know specifically. Let me let me say something. Illusions is a very specific set. I know uh, you're being sensitive and not using the word trick, which I abhor the word trick. I mm-hmm. think it's the, a wrong word, and I appreciate that. But illusion is also not a perfect replacement because it's actually a part of it. When it comes to a- that, actually answering your question, my favorite illusion, David Copperfield does something called the death saw. He doesn't always do it, but he used to do it years ago, and he'll occasionally bring it back, and it's one of the greatest illusions I've ever seen in my life. When it comes to do I have any favorite specific kinds of magic. I'm, I'm especially interested in card magic as a field, but I, I couldn't name a specific effect that I, I uh, like over others, although because it changes. What is it about the, the card magic and everything that kind of draws your attention to it? Well, card magic is a very, very broad discipline within magic. It's uh, you can do all kinds of things. You can do card magic on a stage. You can do things with, that are more or less versions of mentalism. You can do extreme sleight of hand. There's a crossover into uh, gambling material and sleight of hand. And it's, just, it's fascinating. It's never-ending. It's a, it's a huge universe within the world of magic. There's a real art to magic. There's a real artistry and everything. I remember when I was a, a little kid, they used to always have like the magic specials on, on TV, and I'd always watch it with my family. Um, and they're always like just mind-blowing, and they just captured your attention. And they really kind of, I think, told a story. Is there one aspect of magic that you think the general public kind of overlook in everything when it comes to magic? Well, I don't think... The general public is uh, 
is exposed to enough magic. There's not a lot. Um, I think a whole generation might grow up now and not see very much magic on television at all. There's only, really, David Blaine is about the only one, that, and he does specials here and there, not on a regular basis. And there's a few others that are coming along, but it's not it's not out there where the way music and other performing arts are, where you can you can see it or appreciate it every day. So it's quite interesting that magic isn't isn't well known by the public for the most part. Yeah, it, it really is because I work at a university, and a lot of the students here now, I mean, they were born in the mid '90s, and you talk to them about magic, and they kind of look at you like, "What are you talking about? You're talking about the magic card fantasy game, right?" or Harry Potter or something. They don't really, because there isn't a lot of it on television. And, and other than a few high points, a mm-hmm. lot of what's on television isn't a strong representation of what you'd see in the real world. It's quite interesting. And like you, I, I grew up on television specials, Doug Henning, David Copperfield. It's interesting, one of my favorite specials when I was a kid, uh, Doug Henning had Ricky Jay on as a, as a guest, and this is what transformed me into being primarily interested in card magic, because Ricky Jay is one of the great sleight-of-hand artists of all time. And he he came on to this live television show, and it was just absolutely mind-boggling. What would you say is the biggest misconception about magic that people have? That's a very good question. I would say that it's got something to do with the secret of course, magicians hide their art. They hide the, the, the methods. But all art hides the method if it's done well. It's an emotional vehicle. You want to connect to your audience in an emotional way, not an, a rational way. A successful performance means that they're feeling it, not that they're thinking through the, the scenarios or trying to suss out the secret. And I think that the way magic is presented by some magicians makes it into a puzzle. And the public will then try to solve the puzzle, which I think is a, a bad way around. I think it, it, it doesn't let them enjoy it the way it's meant to be enjoyed. And, with it, and I will put the blame for that squarely on the magician's shoulders. It's not the audience's job to show up and suspend disbelief. It's something that the, the filmmaker or the, the, the theater gr- troupe or, or the magician must do to the audience. So that's kind of like where that showmanship comes in then for the magician. Showmanship's a part of it. Showmanship's a misused word often because what showmanship is, is some of the things we don't, you don't need a lot of showmanship in music, in live music or theater, because they know the audience comes already knowing about music. Mm-hmm. In magic, circus, in, in sideshow, in other forms of, of live entertainment that aren't regularly seen, you need that showmanship in order for the audience to have an understanding and an appreciation of what they're actually seeing. The audience doesn't come to see uh, a circus and know what is really difficult and dangerous and what isn't. They really need to be told, and that's the showmanship. Fascinating. Now, you wrote a book a few years ago on uh, Harry Houdini. And it's called The Secret Life of Harry Houdini, The Making of America's First uh, Superhero. How did you first become interested in Harry Houdini? Well, I had an eighth grade teacher, Mr. Z, we called him. And he suggested to the entire class, I was already interested in magic. uh, But he 
suggested to the class that we should read a book about uh, this a specific book. I think it was the only book in the school library about Houdini. And I read it, and I was fascinated because it took these little bits of magic and these little pieces of tricks and things, and it turned it into a real life. You could really understand somebody living this life through reading about Houdini. And I was fascinated. And there's a dirty little secret that on the magician side, there's not as much respect for Houdini as he deserves, in my opinion. So over, I, of course, my eyes got wide reading this book, and I became an immediate hero worshiper of Houdini. And over time, the older magicians kind of beat that out of me. They sort of, you know, said, well, Houdini was just a showman, or he was just this or just that. He wasn't great. He wasn't as good as other people of, of his time. And I kind of believed that. And it took a very long time, maybe 30 years, before it came around to understanding they were wrong and that Houdini was great and the public is right. And they got it. The public knows about him because he was that great. And that's when I started doing original research, and that's when I wrote the book with Larry Sloman on, on Houdini, The Secret Life of Houdini. And it's an absolutely incredible book. Uh, I picked it up in the in the fall. And I couldn't put it down. And you, you guys did a really great job of humanizing Houdini, but yet you still kept the mystery around Houdini. The mist is still around him. And uh, as a reader, I really appreciated it because it, it, it kind of did make Houdini out to be like a superhero. Well, we chose that word very specifically, Peter, and it was a fight with our publisher. They, didn't, they, they, they thought we were somehow channeling a comic book character. They didn't understand. First off, you'll notice in the book we use the term Superman, but we knew, use it in the, the Nietzsche-esque sense, Ubermensch. The, yes, he's a man, but he's more than a man, but still not supernatural, mm -hmm. right? And we used very specifically, we didn't say America's first Superman, okay? Because he really wasn't. There were other Supermen before him. But what he did that was special for his time was that he used his energies once he got to the peak of his career and he had made money, he was knowledgeable, he was famous, he could have just ridden that crest for the rest of his life and been happy. But he turned it all around and started using all of his resources to his own detriment to help other people. And that's when he started going after fraudulent spiritualists. That's why we gave him the appellation superhero, because he really helped people at no benefit to himself. Yeah, and you have these great stories of in the book about just random people going to his house and he would give them coffee and let them go to his library and take books out and talk to them. And it's like, here's the Brad Pitt, the George Clooney of his day, one of the most famous men in America, and he was interacting with, quote unquote, regular people. He did that a lot. One of the things that we discovered was the, the iconic upside-down straitjacket that he used to do, mm -hmm. the suspended straitjacket off the... He usually used newspaper buildings. He probably got that from a young man in the way out in the provinces in England. And he could have gone... I think we said in the book that Houdini could have gone out to dinner after a show with the mayor or the local celebrities or whomever he liked. He was as big as it got. This is the peak of his career. Instead, he got in a car and rode 45 minutes to 
this young man's house and had dinner with his family and talked about magic with this teenager. And this teenager had thought something up, and they took him to the attic. It was an A-frame house, and he, he got Houdini himself to put the kid into a straitjacket, which must have been a great thrill. And they wrapped ropes around his feet, and they had a block and tackle at the top of the A, and they, they put it through, and they pulled him upside down. And within... A few months, Houdini was back in the U.S. doing the same feat, but instead of doing it inside somebody's mother's house's attic, he was doing it on the streets over hundreds of thousands of, of uh, onlookers. In your research on Houdini, what, what was the most surprising fact or like story you, you found about him? There were so many things that we discovered that really were amazing. We had we started off with this concept. We, there had been rumors of Houdini being a spy, and the rumors were unsubstantiated. They were they they actually turned out to be rumors that he was a German spy, and that led us to thinking about all of his qualifications to not really be a full fledged 2015 level spy, but being involved in, in intelligence gathering and just doing little bits and pieces. And sure enough, we found evidence that. What would become what was called Scotland Yard Special Branch, which was a, an intelligence agency, would become MI5 eventually, and Houdini worked with them and sent them letters when he was in Germany and in Russia, were the people that those sorts of English uh, police officers were interested in knowing about. And that was a, a crazy shock when we found that out. Who would have thought that this celebrity – was was like a James Bond type character too, to a degree, to, um, a, to a degree. But you know what's amazing about that is after we discovered that, of course, you don't just do research into Houdini. You find out how does this work with all kinds of other celebrities, and we found that intelligence agencies have used whomever they could for forever. It's not. It wasn't that uncommon. It was. We thought it was terribly uncommon when we discovered that. But truth is, even today. Intelligence agencies reach out to people that have special connections and resources. And they're not, they're not really spies. They're just good citizens. We're based out of Chicago, and when you and I spoke previously, you said the city of Chicago has had a, a pretty big impact on the world of magic. Can you talk about what type of impact Chicago's had on the world of magic? Well, for Houdini, of course, he, he worked at the 1893 he was on the Midway, and he had a lot of turns in his career in Chicago. Chicago was important for Houdini. This is where the first time his picture was in the paper, when he escaped from a jail at Andy Rohan, who was a, a famous Chicago police officer at that time. But, but there's been a lot of great magic. One of my dearest friends in the world who passed away a few years ago, Jay Marshall, ran Magic Incorporated, which is still in Chicago, being run by his son Sandy. And this is an iconic, important magic center, a mecca for magicians to go to and talk magic and buy the latest things. But there have been great magicians in Chicago. I mean, Chicago's, I think, one of America's greatest cities. I mean, maybe a second only to New York. And that could be arguable. And Chicago's had great bar magicians, great all kinds of great magicians. It's just so many magicians that came from Chicago, it's hard for me to even tell you. One of the greatest card magic inventors of all time, Ed Marlowe, was in Chicago his entire life. Bill Malone, who is one of the funniest, one of the most talented magicians alive today, comes from Chicago. 
So Chicago really has a special relationship with magic. That's really fascinating. And, uh, you know, I'm the first to admit I, I'm not too uh, familiar with the world of magic other than just starting to explore it now after reading your book and just reading about some of the Houdini stories in Chicago. It's it's just this added layer of of storytelling and just history, really, uh, finding out of what Chicago is, has done for for the world of magic and everything. It's, it's really kind of neat. Some of his tightest, closest confidants were in Chicago. Leonard Hicks ended up in Chicago and ended up being a manager and owner, I think, of hotels. Montreville Wood was a, an inventor of some of Houdini's most closely guarded secrets was in Chicago. Okito, <laughs> the nearly the last generation of a long dynasty of magicians from Holland, ended up living in Chicago. How has the quote-unquote digital age effective magic? Has it affected it? And if it has, do you think it's been a positive or negative effect on it? It's absolutely had an effect. Let's, uh, let me define for you kind of what I see so far. It's made material for magicians much easier to get, more readily available. There's a lot more video. Video can be, you can stream it. You don't have to buy it on discs. Uh, there are We've built at Conjuring Arts, we've built a, a, a two and a half million page online library that can be searched. These are all things that, that new technology makes possible. And the things that you can find, the research you can do, uh, is, is saves hours or days or, or more because of the, the technology. Alternatively, if you perform and you're a magician and your audience wants to know a secret, they can go to YouTube and ask YouTube, and there will be videos of people coming up with theories about how things work. And a lot of magicians think that that's a, a problem. I, I personally don't think it's such a problem. I don't think it's a, it's a big deal. But how we learn has definitely been impacted, and I see the latest generation of young magicians coming in and reading less than, than the generation I came from. We didn't have video, so we read. And I think there's a fundamental difference in how you learn. I think reading, personally, I think reading in this kind of material is much more important than just watching a video of somebody performing. Now, you mentioned the Conjuring Arts uh, Research Center. What exactly does the Conjuring Arts Research Center do? Conjuring Arts collects materials related to magic. We catalog them, we archive them, and then we make them accessible to people that want to use them. One of our initiatives is digitizing the, the collection. And that's, I, I mentioned that we, we have about two and a half million pages, actually a little more, digitized. Uh, we have an outreach program where we teach magic to veterans and kids and some kids in the in New York City uh, lockup system, the juvenile justice system. We uh, publish a, a journal of history that we're literally publishing our 10th anniversary issue today. It's a real, it's a real, we have a wonderful editor, uh, Stephen Minch from Seattle, who's, who's edited since day one. And it's substantial. The smallest issues are 150, 160 big pages. Oh, my and God. The bigger issues, nearly 300 pages. And we've done this uh, twice a year now uh, for 10 years. And it's really, it's a place that real scholarly magic research can be published, and that's, that's special. We're very proud of that. So we have those kinds of initiatives. We've uh, done a lot of things. Uh, we're always hoping to, to help elevate the art and, and 
and raise the awareness in the public's mindset about magic. What's the craziest magic artifact that you've ever come across, whether it's been at the research center or just in your in your travels uh, learning and studying magic? What's been that craziest uh, artifact you've seen? Well, that's a very interesting question because there are so many things that you, you think could never could never survive, and you find these things. I mean, we found pristine decks of cards that come from a from the golden age of of cards. We found here at the library we have numerous books that are the only copies known in the world. There's no other copy in any library in the world that's known. Oh my God, that's got to be humbling. It's amazing because it's there must have been thousands when they were printed and they're all lost except for the single copy that's left. And we we managed to get a an engraving of someone who was as level of fame was like Houdini, except it was in the sixteenth century. And this engraving was, was made in fifteen ninety two and he was known to every head of state in Europe. Uh, Rudolf the Second knew him, Elizabeth Queen Elizabeth of England knew him. James I, her successor, uh, would actually write about him in, in, his, in his book, Demonology. And this engraving so rare that we might have the only one in the United States. It's really interesting. So there are things out there, but everybody's got different tastes. For some people, uh, David Copperfield has one of the greatest collections in the world of magic. Maybe it's the greatest. I shouldn't even qualify it. And he has all of Robert Houdin's material. Robert Houdin was was the father of modern magic. In fact, Houdini took his name from Robert Houdin. He took Houdin and added an I and became Houdini. And Copperfield's got things that just make your your head spin because they're they're so special. So there's there's a lot of great artifacts in our in our realm, in our world. What would you say is the current state of magic? I think magic's very healthy right now. I think we need some more breakthroughs on television. You know, there's there's really two periods of magic on television. There's pre-David Blaine and post-David Blaine. David <laughs> Blaine changed everything. When he came along and turned the camera around and made the audience of close-up magic part of the show, it was a fundamental shift. And that has, all these shows since then have more or less ridden on that. And I don't know what it's going to be, but there needs to be another shift. But I think that there's there are a lot of very good magicians. There are a lot of people that take it very seriously, and the resources are there. And I think magic is in a is in a very strong state, even though it's always changing. It's not like the old days where magic clubs were important. They're becoming less so, but the Internet has created virtual magic clubs. People communicate over long distances instead of in the basement of a, of a church every Wednesday. So I think magic's in a great state. Thank you for listening to this WXAV.com podcast. Check out WXAV.com for future podcasts. WXAV, the escape from ordinary radio.